Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There is nothing funny about dementia, yet the theme is explored with humor and tenderness. In a recent film starring Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish, later this hour, We'll talk with the award-winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel, whose story is the basis for the movie Here Today. First, the acclaimed architect, designer, and scholar Bryony Roberts approaches design as a social practice. Her colorful installation on the outdoor plaza at the High Museum emerged from conversations with disabled self-advocates and their allies throughout Atlanta with the goal of creating a space that's engaging for everyone. Outside the Lines is the title of the installation. Bryony Roberts joins us now via Zoom with Monica Obniski, the High Museum Curator of Decorative Arts and Design. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks, Lois. Nice to be back with you. Always. Bryony, you have installations in Chicago, Rome, Norway, and now in Atlanta. What inspired you to design interactive installations that are inclusive for all people? So many reasons. You know, I've always been interested in this sort of crossover between art and architecture. I have a background in in both fields, and I, I love how in the space between those fields, you can create environments that are really tactile and immersive and playful and fun. And so I've been doing that for a couple of years. And the more I see children in particular, enjoying the pieces and exploring them and using them in ways that I could never imagine, that's been a big inspiration and motivation for me to keep making more bits about, you know, inviting people to sort of engage and interact with it in multiple ways. And in particular, you were asking, I think, about why create spaces, you know, with an eye towards people with disabilities. That's been emerging through work I've been doing with a feminist architecture collaborative called WIP Collaborative in New York City. And we've been doing research more and more on designing for neurodiversity. So thinking about um, how to create spaces that are inviting and fun for people with sensory sensitivities, people with autism, and really any kind of sensitivities in public space And I wanted to sort of expand that further and also think about the overlapping sort of experiences of people who are visually impaired and have mobility impairments. So that was really the purpose of this project. This is extraordinary, bringing in people who are visually impaired. We don't usually think of them attending visual art exhibitions, but we should not dismiss that. How did you arrive at that realization? 
Yeah, that was such a meaningful part of this process. And I was lucky because the High Museum already has a relationship with the Center for Visually Impaired. So they already had a dialogue going and I was able to sort of just continue that dialogue and speak with Greg Aikens in particular from the Center for Visually Impaired who runs the summer programming and other programming for children. And it was so amazing to talk to him about the experience of navigating space um, and how important, you know, textures and materials are in finding, you know, the edges of different volumes or surfaces or spaces, but also the fact that a lot of the people that they do programming for have some vision, so they're not entirely blind. And so bright contrasts and colors are actually really helpful in creating uh, the sense of a boundary to a space or, you know, a line of navigation. So that was a big part of using the yellow um, that sort of goes all the way down and creates the sort of edges of the piece and also the white structures, which kind of pop out from the plaza. But really the project is kind of an explosion of textures so that the, the kids who come as part of their programming will be able to explore the seating and the hanging straps and the netting and just have a lot of fun and sort of delight in that textural exploration. It's almost like a gigantic bright colored interactive mobile. Oh, I love that. I didn't think about it that way, but that's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love the multi-layered meaning of the title of the exhibition. How did you come up with Outside the Lines? Well, Monica and I tossed around a bunch of different names, and that one sort of stuck. And the more we worked with it, the more satisfying I felt it was because of the different layers of meaning. And, you know, on the one hand, the piece is very much designed with lines, you know, in terms of the structure looking like lines drawn in space, you know, very much like or inspired by the kinds of drawings you see in the Calder Picasso show, which are all about lines moving in space. But then it's about lines that are lines you can touch and that move with the wind and are sort of three-dimensional and sensorial lines that you experience with your body. So it's sort of outside of an understanding of lines as I was taught in architecture. It's also about sort of crossing the lines that are often drawn between experiences of people with disabilities and without disabilities in public space. So often there are very specific types of playgrounds or equipment or schools that are created for people with disabilities, and they're sort of separated from the rest of the population. And that can be really destructive. And there's, you know, real need for greater social interaction and understanding. And so part of the goal of this is to sort of dissolve those lines and create a space that everyone can come and enjoy together. Mm. Monica, how did you both decide where on the plaza the piece would be installed. What what were the considerations you had? Well, I can't take any credit for this because this is why we choose to work with brilliant designers. You know, <laughs> it is really in the hands of the designers. We give them the space planning of the piazza and let them know the various kind of considerations, weight limits, et cetera. Um, but we really ask them to use their imagination and to think as as big as they can, given the limitations of the space. And so really that was briny thinking about how people would access the piazza from the various entrances. You know, if people are coming from the parking garage, if people are coming from MARTA, if people are coming from the museum. And also, you know, she, in the kind of lead up to this project, was really thinking about wheelchair access as well and how people might navigate from that perspective. Yeah, you described it perfectly. I think all those entry points and pathways were really key for placing the piece. And then at the end of the process, we also thought, well, what if we just spin it a little bit? <laughs> so it's sitting at an angle on the on the piazza rather than aligned perfectly with the buildings. And that meant that you would actually see more of the piece from all those angles because it would sort of unfold in front of you at a diagonal from any of the, the points of view where you might, might enter the piazza. 
How do people interact with it? Well, and Monica gets to see this even more every day than I do. So she probably can describe it. It's been amazing. I mean, like really any project, you think you know how people are going to use it and then they do wildly different things. So, you know, I was picturing lounging on the netting and kids, you know, running around it and, you know, running their hands through the straps and watching the way that they move. And of course, it's a thousand times more adventurous than that. So you have kids and adults sort of jumping on the netting, hanging from the straps and, it can withstand that, but it's it's still a surprise to see how <laughs> how adventurous people are. While we're not advocating for any of those things, um, and in fact, we do have signage to suggest otherwise, we have noticed that children and adults will make uh, use of space as they you know as they want to. And and frankly, for me, that's the joy of these projects is really understanding open-ended play. And open-ended joy is really something that you can't prescribe. And so that has been a, a really enjoyable part of watching people interact with this. So Lois, when you come, you can interact with it however you like. I promise you I won't be hanging from the straps. <laughs> Excellent. I, I will be looking at them with delight. Can people interact with Outside the Lines outside of the museum's hours of operation? Yeah, the piazza is open. It is part of public life in Atlanta. You know, we the museum, of course, has security personnel on site 24-7, but I know that at least when Brian and I walked through there late one evening, you know, there are no restrictions on the space. It's just not well lit at night, I would say. So that's the only thing. You don't have to come during during museum hours, but that is when I, I would say that the most people are out there enjoying it. Mm-hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with architect Bryony Roberts and the High Museum Curator of Decorative Arts and Design, Monica Obniski. I'm curious about the community partners involved and how they contributed to this creation. Bryony, you mentioned the Center for the Visually Impaired. Who else? Yeah, there were actually many partners. So some of the partners were groups that the museum had existing relationships with, and some were were new partners for the museum. And the goal was really to find organizations and also individuals who could speak to sort of the full range of experiences of people with physical disabilities, as well as developmental disabilities. And from the perspective of self-advocates, as well as parents, families, doctors, Um, experts. So basically, there was a phase in the late fall, I believe, when I just did a a bunch of interviews. So for me, that's, I think, the best way of really learning from people and trying to understand their perspective. Um, And that's something I try to do in most of my projects, to sort of learn from the people who will use the space. So in addition to the Center for Visually Impaired, um, we had Dr. Clayman from the Marcus Autism Center, some of the parents from Parent to Parent of Georgia, the Eric Jacobson from the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities. And the the project, actually, the signage was created in collaboration with Georgia Tech because they have a special lab that creates sort of communications material. I think it's the Center for Inclusive Design and Innovation. I am so impressed with your approach and your inviting those in, those for whom you design and those who can also add perspective and knowledge to what you're trying to design. I mean, this has not been the way architects have approached design in the past. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Yes. And I think there's many of us now who are trying to kind of shift the discipline in that direction. I think there's been a lot of realization, particularly over the last year, about how you know, socially harmful uh, some architecture and planning has been historically. And, you know, there are so many tools for 
doing architecture collaboratively. <laughs> and, you know, so many people have worked on this over, over the years through community organizing and, and urban design. So, you know, I think I'm lucky to, to have a wonderful cohort of people who, who care deeply about this. And we're trying to kind of teach our students these skills, bringing these methods into um, architecture schools and also just into our practice of how to how to do community-based design. If I could share a personal story, I had an aunt who lived in one of the early Mies van der Rohe apartment buildings in Chicago. You may know that 86880 Lakeshore Drive. Oh, yeah, lucky here. Okay. <laughs> well, she moved in before I was born in 1950 when it was built. And the residents who bought their apartments, these were co-ops, were told no window shades, which really was not nice for those with a lake view, which faced east. And they couldn't have air conditioners because it, to the architects, uh, it destroyed the lines. And, and heaven forbid, the window shades in that building, in that glass tower, would all be at different heights. <laughs> so you've come a long way with inviting those in. I guess this is not architecture from the top down, if you'd pardon the <laughs> pun, or groan at the expression. Absolutely. That's the, that's the hope. I mean, I think there's a lot of mythology around architects being these sort of godly figures that come and fix everything for people and plan cities in one fell swoop. And I think, fortunately, there's a lot of, of questioning <laughs> of that mythical role now. And I'd like to think it has something to do with women being, you know, more involved in architecture and bringing different perspectives as well to the field. And yeah, happy to be part of that. <laughs> Would you tell us more about your WIP organization? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm, I'm part of a group of women architects who are collaborating together um, on public space projects. And the idea is that we all have our own individual practices, but if we work together, we can do, you know, these bigger projects and learn from each other. So some of us are landscape architects, some are designers, some are uh, licensed architects, etc. And we're really learning from this history of feminist practices, which is not very well known and not often taught in architecture schools, but there's a history of incredible practices, um, Matrix, uh, Women's Design Service in London, that were all questioning the godlike figure of the architect, you know, decades ago. Back in the 70s, these women worked together and were combining kind of community engagement, design services, and also policy recommendations, really trying to and successfully kind of reshaping the way public spaces were designed, you know, introducing new bathroom designs that were more supportive of women and parents and people with disabilities, and really thinking about, you know, the people who were underserved in the public realm. Mm. How can interactive installations for those with physical, developmental, and or intellectual disabilities lend support to their mental health? I think that a big part of that is this social aspect um, that I heard a lot from people that there's just so much frustration about the isolation of people with disabilities and the fact that they are separated off spatially and the need for social interaction for the growth of the self. And similarly, the importance of challenge. So for example, Greg from the Center for Visually Impaired, you know, I kept asking him about materials and things and saying, is it going to be safe? Will people be comfortable navigating? And he was saying, well, yes, but it's also good if there's a challenge. It's good if it's a little difficult because then they learn new motor skills and balance and navigation skills. And that kind of challenge in the sensory environment is also kind of lacking um, and a really needed resource. And I'll just add, um, and this goes back to something that Bryony said earlier about the need 
for inclusive design really to be designed for everybody. And so I think, you know, at least this is something that Bryony and I had discussed was, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if what everyone designed kind of moving forward was actually accessible to everyone? Like, shouldn't that be the goal for all architecture and design moving forward? And so I just think about a project like this and how it really does serve the user as opposed to kind of serving the architect who created it. You know, I think that's one of the wonderful aspects of this project, but also of Briny's approach. Hmm. And I should add, Monica, this installation is part of the High's multi-year series of inclusive commissions to incorporate the museum's outdoor space. Yeah, as you rightly mentioned, Lois, this is part of a long-standing project that the High has been undertaking, asking designers to create interesting installations on the piazza. I think this year with Briny's project, we really took it to another level in terms of research-driven practice that really incorporates community engagement, which is something that the museum has been long known uh, for, and also this collaborative approach that she undertakes. And so we're really thrilled that Outside the Lines is kind of, you know, meeting all of those expectations of the museum. But also from my perspective as the curator, it's also a visually, tactily, just interesting and stunning installation. And so, and, I, and, and that is because of Bryony's background and, and her approach. Monica Obniski, the High Museum Curator of Decorative Arts and Design, and acclaimed architect Bryony Roberts. Roberts designed the High's new installation, Outside the Lines, which you can experience on the museum's outdoor plaza through November. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, my interview with the award-winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel. His story is the basis for Here Today, a recent film with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish, just released today on Blu-ray and DVD. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Life is too short for commas. That's just one of the many wonderful lines and bits of wisdom in the new film Here Today with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. The movie is based on The Prize, a short story by the award-winning writer and all-around mensch, Alan Zweibel. He's with us now via Zoom. Alan, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me back, Lois. Pleasure. Billy Crystal is a longtime colleague and among your closest friends. Was it his idea to adapt your story to film? Well, what had happened was I had written this short story and it was published. And then I went on the Letterman show on one of my guest appearances there. And I told the story anecdotally. Billy wasn't aware of the short story, but I, he heard the story that I was telling on the Letterman show and he texted me while I was on the show. He was watching (laughs) it and he uh, said, um, call me when you're done. (laughs) And I did. And he said, why don't we take that story and make it the first scene between an older man and a younger woman and let's see where it takes us in a script. And that's exactly what we did. And um, the short story was called The Prize and he and I adapted it into a screenplay. And uh, here we are three years later, and um, the movie opens next Friday. Mm. Well, without spoilers, can you give us a synopsis? Yeah, what it is is a real, the real synopsis of the movie is that uh, Billy plays an, uh, an older comedy writer, and he uh, has a rich history on Broadway and uh, 
in TV and in movies. And he's like an elder statesman. And he, uh, he meets a younger woman who won him in a silent auction, okay? And that's the scene that I told about on the Letterman show. I won't spoil that. It's in the trailer though, but the short synopsis is, is that they form a friendship and it's an older man, younger woman. It's not a romance, but it's a love story. And um, it's a deep kind of uh, friendship that they develop. And he has the onset of dementia. And when she, once she discovers that in him, she helps him. He's writing a book, which is a tribute to his deceased wife. And he wants to finish the book before he runs out of his words altogether. And she becomes his muse. That's basically the overarching theme of, of the movie. It's real funny and uh, it will make you cry at the end. Oh my goodness, I cried before the end. It's, it's a gorgeous film. And we are talking about a tragic illness, a very sad story that you managed to achieve treating this theme with gentle humor and at times outrageous humor that just makes it a stunning combination. Charlie Burns, the character played by Billy Crystal, you mentioned he's an acclaimed comedy writer like yourself. And he, yeah, and he works for a late night comedy show, This Just In, which seems a lot like Saturday Night Live. You were one, <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling a little autobiographical material here. Alan, you were one of the original writers of that show. Is the professional situation of Charlie Burns how you imagine things might have been if you had remained at SNL all 40-some years? Yes and no. It's basically, though, and I haven't been with the show since 1980, one of the original writers with me was, was a man named Herb Sargent, who was a legendary television writer. He produced That Was the Week That Was, and... Uh, if you Google him, his uh, some wonderful movies. And when I was 25, he was like 54. He was um, he, he was a mentor. He was on staff there. And when I left the show uh, and Billy was on the show a few years later, uh, he ultimately had the same relationship with Herb Sargent that I did. So while Herb did not get dementia. That's something that Billy and I pulled from our real lives. My father started having dementia. Uh, a relative uh, uh, of Billy started having dementia. We put that into, but the, the character himself is more like Herb, was where he's an older writer among all these younger ones. So in answer to your question, had I stayed there, I'm now 70 years old. <clears throat> Uh, I would have been Herb Sargent, you know, I would have had that kind of status working uh, among all these 25 and 30 year old um, uh, young writers. So yeah, a little bit maybe, but like I said, we had a prototype that we both had Herb in mind, we both visioned him, and we wrote for him, you know, and then the character evolved the way I told you, you know, with dementia and uh, and whatever, that, that was all manufactured. Ah, well, of course, you were, neither you nor Billy Crystal were putting yourselves right into the character. I, I mean, all artists draw from personal experience, but I wondered, I also wondered, CB, those are the reverse initials of Billy Crystal. Was that intentional? My guess is not because this is the first time it's come up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm overthinking it, Alan. No, Billy Crystal I, I BCCB. Think, yeah. No, we, we gave that character many names before uh, we came upon Charlie Burns. It was just arbitrary. We were just trying to think of somebody of, of that era, you know, an older person. Uh, what were the names of people that we knew? We took the first name from this person and the last name from that we must have 12 different kinds of uh, names before we settled on Charlie Burns. 
And it's spelled with a Z because we couldn't get clearance on B-E-R-N-S or B-U-R-N-S. So we put a Z in it. Well, that in and of itself reminded me of Mel Brooks' film where he's a writer, he goes by Mel Fun, F-U-N-N. And I thought maybe that was just a riff on how many Jews shortened their names, you know, to something that sounds less dignified than, than what their original Eastern European Jewish names would have sounded like. So the B-U-R-N-Z lands well. There's a part of the film where we see a 30th anniversary celebration of this just in, the SNL-like TV show. And some of the younger writers think Charlie's 40 years have been more than enough. It's time for him to retire. How does his head writer feel about that? You know, we show in the scene where Charlie Burns is a very important consigliere to the producer. The producer, uh, Charlie Burns, when he was in his heyday, gave the producer his start by hiring him on a show. And as the uh, that man became the producer of his own show, This Just In, uh, he felt comfortable having uh, Charlie around. Uh, Charlie uh, had a perspective on what's funny, uh, what's not funny, what's proper, you know, what kind of material should be used, what's satiric. And so he acted very much like a, a consigliere to the producer. That's very much what Herb Sargent was in all the years that he was there. He was productive and his aura was permeated the place. So as far as the younger writers in this particular movie are concerned, yeah, there is a generation gap and they uh, have a different kind of humor as every generation does. And they question the man's merit, you know, in the show is, is you know, we appreciate what he once did, but uh, he doesn't do what we do. And the, the producer, not only in defending somebody who gave him his own break, uh, lays it out for them. He says, you know, he's very valuable asset to us. And uh, as long as I'm here, he will be here. So he expresses his loyalty, but it's also there is worth. This is just not a charity case to uh, a guy who started the producer. Now, it's a very powerful moment. And I think People of a certain age will appreciate that perspective. One scene in the movie is set in a restaurant, and it feels reminiscent of when Harry met Sally. Alan, the wit, the delivery, is a love letter to the humor we associate with New York comics and the humor you provided for so many comics. The overstatement is at rapid-fire tempo. Tiffany Haddish's character, Emma, orders extra seafood on her seafood salad, and when the platter arrives, Charlie says, look what the tide brought in. Right. Hello. Welcome to Le Monde. I'll be your server. What can I get started for you today? Have you ever eaten here before? Nope. They're the greatest steak sandwich in the city. That's all I get when I'm here. Trust me, it's fantastic. That sounds perfect. I'll have the seafood salad. Okay. And for you, sir? Um, I'm going to have the... Uh, oh, can I have extra clams, extra calamari, and extra crab meat? Of course. Thank you. And for you, sir? I'm going to have Oh, and can I have a lobster tail right on top? Oh, and extra mussels. Lots of mussels. The ones from New Zealand, not the ones from Jersey, because they got them black hairs. Who knows what's in those? You know, that could be really toxic. Are you done? Because there are a few species that you haven't mentioned yet. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I'm gonna have Oh, can I have a Diet Coke? <laughs> and for you, sir? I'm gonna have a tuna sandwich, whole wheat toast, and a nice tea. Very good. Now, why would you order a tuna sandwich when you said they had the best steak sandwiches in the city? Because while you were ordering half of the Atlantic Ocean, I developed a hankering for the only fish left on the menu. <laughs> Touche, old man. Touche. <laughs> Whoa, look what the tide brought in. Yeah. I have the impression you don't have to work hard. Is this your native language? Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, we skipped over it when I was given the summary of the movie before, but that's the, uh, that was 
exact scene that took place in my short story, The Prize, because that's what happened when I was the, uh, the, the prize of a silent auction. And the, the, the winner uh, of it, when I finally did have lunch with her, she did have uh, an allergic reaction to seafood. <laughs> and uh, I took her to Lenox Hill Hospital. She didn't have insurance. I bought her an EpiPen. And what cost her $22 to win, a, <laughs> to win lunch with me cost me $1,100. You know, uh, so that was the story I mentioned on Letterman. And that's what Billy responded to and said, let's make that the first scene between an older guy and a younger woman. Wow, so far a tuna sandwich cost me close to two grand. Welcome to New York, pal. In answer to your question, that scene was almost verbatim with what the short story was. But obviously on the set, um, something like Look What the Tide uh, brought in, I think Billy Ad lived that, you know. So my short story gave us structure, gave us the beats of uh, what the uh, story of lunch was. But there was a lot of ad-libbing that the two of them did when they got on there, uh, got on the set. In answer to your question, uh, yeah, that's where I live. That's in my head, you know, that's... Um, Every writer uh, feels comfortable with a certain sensibility. And uh, so their expression of certain things comes out a certain way. Hmm. And that's how that came out. It comes out perfectly. In fact, the movie is sort of a love letter to New York or an aspect of how some creative people live their lives in New York. You're absolutely right. I mean, we shot the movie in New York. We shot in Brooklyn. And we look for locations that ordinarily aren't seen in the movies when you're shooting New York. And it's it looks beautiful. And uh, there's a couple of scenes in particular. There was one that took place outside of Lincoln Center yes. at night. Emma, Tif Tiffany Haddish's character, didn't know that Billy, Billy's character was having, uh, starting to get dementia. She, out of her own curiosity, went to see him on a panel where they were saluting uh, the 30th anniversary of one of his old films. And when he left the theater of uh, Lincoln Center, she caught up with him. They both, uh, it was dark, it was night, and we didn't know it was going to rain. So we gave them both umbrellas. And it's the most beautiful scene in the world because it's the two of them with a, a illuminated Lincoln Center and a, a, its, its fountain behind them while they're having this conversation under umbrellas in the rain. So it's a, a, just like Woody Allen used to do in his old movies like Manhattan. Uh, we, we shot a lot of it in Brooklyn, but we shot across the East River. So you saw that side of Manhattan, you know, the East side of Manhattan. So if you look at it, uh, when you watch the movie, it's a lot of picture postcards of New York City. Comedy writer Alan Zweibel. The film Here Today was based on Zweibel's short story, The Prize, and stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal. We'll return to more of this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you've just tuned in, my guest is the multi-award winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel. His short story, The Prize, is the basis of the recent film, Here Today, 
which was just released today on Blu-ray and DVD. Let's get back to my conversation with Swibel. Here, he explains how renowned violinist Itzhak Perlman got involved with the film. It came about because it happened in real life with my wife. It didn't happen with Iskar Perlman. When we uh, got married, uh, we had our first apartment on 82nd Street in New York. It had two levels to it. And on the top level, which was ground level, there was a patio. And we go out on the patio. Behind us was the Beresford, a historic, beautiful building in New York. And Isaac Stern lived in that building. And Isaac Stern would often practice, and um, we would hear. Robin and I would go out and have wine and cheese. And uh, it's, you know, Isaac Stern was <laughs> more romantic with it. So when I told Billy about it, you know, Isaac Stern uh, has passed away. Billy called Iscock Perlman and had him play that part. And when he came to the set, what a thrill it was. What a because he knew what the scene was and he says don't you know we didn't know what music you know how are you going to tell it's like Perlman play this or play that he says don't worry about it I got it covered and he played you know perfectly he knew what the scene was it was a dance between Billy and uh, Tiffany and they were dancing to basically a serenade of sort played by uh, Iskak Perlman their supposed neighbor Light, which means love, sorrow. And I thought, what a brilliant touch because Billy Crystal's character, Charlie Burns, is trying to come to terms with the death of his wife. And I figured, oh, that was a stroke of genius. And I guess leave it to Itzhak Perlman, indeed. You can't tell him what to play, but it is just glorious. Gosh, what cherished memories you and Robin have of yeah. that fiddling outside your window. I think Beverly Sills lived in that building, too. Oh, yeah. That, that's a, you know, Jerry Seinfeld now lives there, but I think uh, Adolph Green lived there. A real historic building, you know. There's a few of them that Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein lived in. I get confused between that building sometimes and the Dakota. But there were a few of them where um, that generation in particular lived in those buildings. Pre-war, beautiful buildings. Writer Alan Zweibel. His new film, Here Today, stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal, who also directed We'll hear more about the movie after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the award-winning comedy writer Alan Zweibel. His new movie, Here Today, stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal, who also directed. Here, Alan talked about addressing the grim subject of dementia within the framework of a comedy. The beauty of the movie is that we treated dementia with respect. It's devastation not only on the individual who has it, but on the family. Uh, who's experienced it along uh, with that uh, person. There's not one joke in it about forgetting something. There's not one joke where we make light of it. We treat it with respect. So that was our approach. I would notice changes in my father. He knew changes uh, in his aunt, Billy did. And just in general, we went, okay, let's handle this with dignity. And you too. And in fact, that's at the essence of Charlie Burns's comedy, as well as yours and Billy Crystal's. 
I think the producer has a line where he describes Charlie's style as not just comedic, there's humanity to it. That was the thing that Herb Sargent had taught me, that uh, jokes are jokes, which are great, because they're social commentaries and they make you laugh. But he also told me that, you know, you can do a joke that even if it doesn't get a big laugh, you keep it in because the fact that you delivered that joke will have another importance. Emma's parents were both singers. And in fact, her style is a tribute to old songs. We, we hear her singing a Fats Waller song initially. Would you talk about Emma's character as she evolves in the film in contrast to your short story? Well, we gave her life. You know, my short story was told about a lunch, you know, and here it was very much Billy as the director, as we were writing it, we were very, very uh, mindful of, okay, who is this character? Where does she go? What is her arc, if you will? So when we came up with a biography for her, that was Billy's idea. He knows all about the jazz era and post-jazz, and he gave it to her. I, I believe he wrote that speech where she describes her, her parents. And what we find is that there's a lot below the waterline with Emma. She seems a little ditzy and flighty, and then the, the, uh, there's real substance there. And when she befriends Charlie so she could be helpful to him and make him feel secure and, and makes him feel loved. So in order for that to happen, we had to give the character a lot of substance and um, validity. And in fact, they validate each other as artists. Well, yeah. I mean, look, a creative person is a creative person. You might express it in comedy. You might express it in jazz. You might express it in any kind of music. You might express it in painting. But, you know, that's the form of expression. But at the root of it is a, a creative yearning. It's a, it's a need to express yourself by whatever medium, uh, you know, is your strength. So they connect on an artistic level as well. Do you want to talk about the character of Carrie, or is that giving too much away? I, I think that all we have to say about that is that Carrie is uh, uh, Billy's deceased wife, Billy's character's deceased wife, and it's a, a book about her that he is writing. It's an elegy to her when he meets uh, Tiffany and he's having trouble writing it and like i said earlier that uh, once she realizes what his affliction is she becomes his muse in an attempt to help him finish writing this book when charlie is asked how did you become a writer he said i don't think you become one i think you just are that's you isn't it alan well it's yeah it's me and billy but I, I i believe that writers are born that they're not made there's something in your dna that um makes you uh write i wake up 5:30 every morning to this very day and um i start my work it's i carry a pad with me as does everyone that i know who does what i do it's um, a compulsion yeah you can hone your craft you can learn some tricks you can, uh, obviously, you get better as you get older and more experienced. You have a you sharpen your ear and you become more attuned to the life, the inner life of a character, you know, and his, his or her surroundings. But I, I don't think that there's anybody making a career decision, gee, do I become a comedy writer or a shoe store owner? <laughs> so I do think that there's a, a need to express, you know. Even though you were perfectly willing to make deli sandwiches while you were trying to earn a living as a writer. Well, I think everybody starts off somewhere. You try to play, pay the bills. You know, the biggest cliche is actresses starting out as uh, waitresses, yeah. you know. And you do what you, you have to do to pay the bills, but, you know, you stay up a little later or you wake up a little earlier to work on what your dream is. One of my favorite lines in the movie is that 
Charlie says, the great outdoors would be a lot better if it was indoors. I'm a great believer in the great indoors. I got to tell you, I related to that. Well, me and Billy being, you know, these Jews from Long Island, you know, uh, the thought of hunting or being, uh, you know, waking up in there can be a bear outside <laughs> of is, is a horrifying thought. So, uh, you know, that was an easy line to write. Sleeping outside, isn't that why God made beds and yeah, created exactly. roofs? Made of beds and hotels and roofs, yeah, absolutely, and, uh, you know, mats that you put on the floor of a bathroom, you know. Exactly. There's a beautiful line in this film where Charlie Burns says, there's a music to comedy. There are notes. Alan Zweibel, you are a master composer. And I Oh, what a nice compliment. Thank you. Oh, that I'm, means the world to us. I'm going to call you maestro from now on. Thank you. <laughs> that will be your name for me, and I will respond uh, and uh, with much appreciation. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, it's always my pleasure, Lois. I look forward to the next time. Multi-award-winning comedy writer, author, playwright, and screenwriter, Alan Zweibel. His film, Here Today, is available as of today on Blu-ray and DVD. The movie stars Tiffany Haddish and Billy Crystal. And you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Scott Stewart stops by to share his summer playlist. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.